<clears throat> trying to remember there was one other announcement I was supposed to make and I I know I was supposed to make it, but I can't remember what it is. Does anybody know? I guess I'll hear from somebody that I forgot their announcement, but I did not write it down. Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, John chapter 6. I had a hunch this might take me more than one time, and it's going to be this week and next, kind of going over the same verses from two perspectives. Uh, There should be an outline in your bulletin. You can track with the message and uh, printed messages at both exits, so you can pick those up if you'd like, either now or later. And then the audio messages are on the church website as well. I want to read from verse 60 down to verse 71. Uh, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Or also do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you, you've known people who have professed to believe in Jesus Christ. They seem to follow Him for some time. Perhaps in some cases, I know of many, even served in ministry. Uh, my former pastor would be one who baptized me, but yet they, they fall away. He left the ministry, he left the faith, lived his final years basically as an unbeliever. Often the cause of, of spiritual defection, as in the case of my former pastor, is moral failure, but then there are other causes as well. Some have unresolved doubts due to difficult questions that they have about the Bible, things like, well, how can you resolve this seeming contradiction in the Bible, or uh, how can you reconcile the biblical account of creation with what modern science is telling us? How can a loving and, and powerful God permit all of the evil that we see every day on the news around the world? 
if God loves everyone, why hasn't he permitted everyone to hear the gospel? As we know, there are still unreached people who have yet to hear. Uh, if God is sovereign, then does that mean we're just a bunch of robots with no free will? I've heard that one of people who walk away from the faith. I could go on and on and on with the many difficult questions that come up that cause some to defect from faith in Christ. But let me bring it a little closer to home rather than those out there we know. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, no doubt you have personally struggled, wrestled with hard issues that have challenged your faith. Maybe it was some of the hard questions I just mentioned. Uh, Perhaps you prayed for something that sure seemed to be the will of God. You could even put your finger on chapter and verse and you prayed for it. And it didn't come about the way you prayed. Uh, Maybe you trusted some promise in the Bible, but it seemed like it didn't work. And that you fell through the cracks on that one. Uh, Some of you have had some difficult physical issues, illness, that kind of thing that may have even hindered you from serving the Lord and you've wondered why God would permit such a thing. Uh, It's very difficult. Some of you have had a a spouse or a, a loved one who has betrayed your trust and broken the relationship and... Uh, You've been wounded that way, or perhaps your children whom you love dearly, whom you sacrificed for, whom you tried to teach the ways of God to, and yet they have rejected the faith and sometimes rejected you and caused a lot of pain. Now, how do you handle those kinds of hard trials, those, those disappointments that come about? And what do you do when those you love turn away from the faith and uh, seemingly deny Christ even though they formerly professed Him? So what we're looking at in our text here is how do you persevere uh, in faith when things in the Bible or things in your own experience don't seem to, to line up with what you had expected when you came to faith in Christ. So we're looking today and next time at the antidote for spiritual defection. Now, our text is reporting the aftermath of Jesus' discourse after he fed the 5,000. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children, so probably should be called the feeding of the 20,000. And then he goes to Capernaum, Those people follow him there. He gives this discourse on being the bread of life. And verse 60 we read, Therefore, uh, many of his disciples, when they heard this, that is, they heard his discourse, his claims that we have studied the last few weeks, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Jesus replies to them in verses 61 through 65, but that doesn't, um, that doesn't answer their grumbling and, and placate them. And so in verse 66 we read, as a result of this, many of his disciples, that would be not the twelve, but those who just followed him, that's what disciple means, a follower, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 
Also, twice in our text, John mentions Judas in verse 64, and then again in verses 70 and 71. He makes a point of saying that he is one of the twelve that would betray Jesus. And so, there are many defections from Christ that we see in this uh, text, and we have to probe the question, well, why do people defect? And the positive side, how can we persevere in uh, faith? Jesus asked the twelve there in verse 67, you don't also want to go away, do you? And Peter gives that great reply in verses 68 and 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I believe that his words give us the antidote to spiritual defection, and that is that persevering faith in both God's Word and God's Son is the antidote to spiritual defection. We have a similar thing in Hebrews. In chapter 10 and verse 36, the writer tells his readers who were going through severe trials because of their faith, They were tempted to go back to Judaism, and he says, you have need of endurance. And then we have that great Hebrews 11 chapter, which is all about how the saints of old persevered through all kinds of trials by faith in God and in His Word. And so, that's the message here, that we need faith in God's Word, we need faith in God's Son, if we want to persevere and not fall away. Now, This Sunday, I can only deal with the first half of it. Persevering faith in God's Word is the antidote to spiritual defection. Uh, To begin with, we need to acknowledge what I've already stated, and that is that there are hard truths in God's Word that I would contend need to be submitted to, even if you don't understand them or even if you don't like them. And that's the problem, isn't it? Some of those hard truths... We just don't like. Uh, they, they grade us the wrong way. What do you do at a time like that? Now, these Jews in John 6, these disciples, would-be disciples or fair-weather disciples, remember they had eaten the miraculous loaves of bread there by the Sea of Galilee and the fish. And as a result, they had uh, sought Jesus out. They found him in Capernaum. Uh, But they sought him, as we saw earlier, for the wrong reason. They wanted this political Messiah who would deliver them from Rome, bring in peace and prosperity. And uh, they stumbled over Jesus' claim that he makes in verse 35. Well, he makes it all through this section. That he is the bread of life and that he came down from heaven. And so... Uh, they grumble because, verse 41 and 42, they were saying, well, wait a minute, we know this man. Uh, we know where he grew up in Nazareth. We knew his parents, Joseph and Mary. And uh, they just couldn't accept Jesus' claim that he came down out of heaven. And so in verse 43, Jesus confronted their grumbling. And then, as we saw, he Uh, told them that they were unable to come to him unless the Father who sent him drew them. And as I explained, Jesus tells them that to strip them of their own spiritual self-confidence. 
and to show them that they were totally at God's mercy. Uh, He goes on and repeatedly emphasizes that he is that bread that came down out of heaven, that he would give his flesh for the life of the world in verse 51. Uh, Again, this just causes more grumbling, verse 52. Uh, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, as we saw last time, rather than backing off and saying, oh, you misunderstood me, let me explain it, let me tone it down a little bit, it's like Jesus ups the, the uh, uh, amperage of his speech, and in graphic language, he tells them over and over again that in verses 53 to 58, that not only did they need to eat his flesh, but also they needed to drink his blood. And uh, that is what leads to verse 60, that this is a difficult statement. These disciples state, who can listen to it? As good Jews, they were just grossed out by the thought of drinking somebody's blood. Uh, It was against their Jewish law to drink the blood of animals, but drinking the blood of this man... And, of course, they thought their Jewish religion, their Jewish heritage were good enough to put them in good standing with God. And they refused to see that they needed a Savior from sin and that Jesus was the Passover Lamb of God who would give himself as the complete and final sacrifice for sin. And so they grumbled. But Jesus doesn't back off at all. And he was saying to them, you have to trust in my sacrificial death uh, on your behalf for your sins. Now, the important thing to note here is their attitude. They did not come to Jesus with teachable, submissive hearts. They came to Jesus grumbling. See, they didn't come and say, Lord, you know, we're confused about what you're saying. Could you help us understand? We want to believe you. We're just struggling with this. I believe Jesus would have dealt with them in a far different way. Uh, Verse 61, Jesus was conscious that his disciples grumbled. That implies they weren't coming to him with their complaint. They're just grumbling among themselves. You know, how can this man do this? And uh, so Jesus doesn't soften things or explain things. He confronts their grumbling. And the reason he did is they were sitting in judgment on Jesus. They were not coming again to say, Lord, teach us. They were saying, you know, this is that kid that grew up in Nazareth. We knew him. Yeah. You know, now he's telling us that we got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. I mean, this is crazy. This guy's out there. And we are the ones who are normal. And so they're sitting in judgment on the words of Jesus rather than submitting to the words of Jesus and saying, Lord, I don't understand. Teach me. I experience the same thing quite often. I'll make a comment in a sermon, and uh, a few weeks later I kind of notice, huh, where's that family? I haven't seen them around. So I start asking around, and someone says, oh, yeah, yeah, it was what you said back there. Really? And they never come talk to me. They never say, you know, I don't get it. I'd really like to understand this. Can you help me? Not again that I'm always right, but what I'm saying is they don't have teachable hearts. If if the Bible confronts what they don't agree with, hey, we're out of here. We'll go find a pastor who agrees with us. And 
If you have that attitude, you won't learn and grow. I think I've shared with you many times that when I was a college student and the subject that is front and center in John 6, God's sovereignty over salvation, I used to go around and round and round with that until finally one time I was boxing with Paul, I thought, in Romans 9, and it was like the Lord said, you're not fighting Paul. I inspired Paul to write that. And you got the answer right in front of you. You're fighting with me. You just don't have a submissive heart. And at that point, I just submitted to what God's Word said. And I think that's the starting place for growing in the Lord. When the Bible confronts us, humble your heart before Him and ask the Lord for understanding. And if you just say, well, I reject it because I don't like it. Well, then who's Lord? You are. And this, this applies to many, many difficult areas because, let's face it, our culture is not going the way of the Word. It's going a whole different direction. So you've got women's issues, the role of women in the home and in the church. The Bible isn't fuzzy on that. But you've got people doing end runs around all of that because the culture says this. And we want to conform to the culture so we don't submit to the Word. Uh, you, you've got the homosexual issue, uh, countercultural. You've got the whole issue of sexual purity. I just read a statistic this morning in an email that something like 80-some percent of Christian college students think it's just fine to live together outside of marriage. Just a staggering statistic. 80-some percent of Christians? You know, you're going, hello. What part of God's Word don't you understand? Uh, and, and there are many, many other issues. Divorce and remarriage, hell. You can go on and on. But my point is this. If you only accept the parts of the Bible that you agree with, then you're the Lord of the Bible. The Lord isn't the Lord anymore. You're the Lord saying, well, I, I just deem that this part of the Word is old-fashioned and it doesn't apply and, uh, you know, you're using the Bible to support your own biases. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And Christ affirmed of the Bible, John 17:17, 17, 17, your word is truth. And it's not bending truth. It's absolute truth. That was another statistic in this email that... Um, most Christian college students do not believe in absolute truth, but the Bible tells us how we should live in every culture and every age. So, first thing, we've got to submit to the hard truth of the Bible. But how do we do that? Well, the second thing to note is that to submit to these hard truths, we have to be born of the Spirit. Verse 63, Jesus says to these fair-weather disciples, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so Jesus, I believe here, is confronting the root problem of these grumblers. Namely, they were not born again. Uh, remember when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and Jesus' first words to Nicodemus that I'm sure hit him right between the eyes, John 3.3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
In other words, he's saying, Nicodemus, all your religious learning, all of your religious rituals, all of your Judaism won't commend you to God. You have to be born again. And then a few verses later in verse 6, Jesus explains, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, is spirit. And I believe that's essentially what Jesus is saying in John 6.63. The Holy Spirit imparts new life to dead sinners. And human religious effort will not commend you to God or get you into heaven. Apart from the new birth, you will never understand spiritual things. You will never submit to spiritual things. And that's why it is necessary, as Jesus has just been saying, to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Now, we saw in our last study what Jesus meant by that graphic language was we have to trust in his sacrificial death on our behalf uh, as our only hope for eternal life. It is Jesus and his death in our place that uh, is how we have new life, trusting in him. And so Jesus confronts these fair-weather followers in verse 64 by saying, but there are some of you who do not believe. That was the problem. The Spirit had not given them new life, and therefore they were unbelieving in Jesus and his message. Now, it's interesting, in verse 60, the crowd thought that Jesus' words were hard or difficult. But in verse 63, Jesus says, actually, his words are spirit and are life. Now, that doesn't sound difficult, does it? And as D.A. Carson explains, he means that his words are the product of the life-giving spirit. And rightly understood, Jesus' discourse that he's just giving are the source, it is the source of life for everyone who will believe. Uh, Dr. Carson adds, one cannot feed on Christ without feeding on Christ's words. For truly believing Jesus cannot be separated from truly believing Jesus' words. And so the Holy Spirit uses the very Word of God to impart new life to dead sinners, and then they have the understanding to uh, understand God's Word, which is spiritually discerned. Now, E.W. Pink shows that there's a balance between verse 63 and verse 64 of our text. In verse 63, when Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life, he is emphasizing there the sovereignty of God in salvation. God must impart new life to us. But then when Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, uh, Pink says those are addressed to human responsibility. Uh, namely, we have to believe Jesus' words as Jesus implies in verse 64, when he says, there are some of you who do not believe, that's an appeal to them. So, why don't you believe? You need to believe in me. Um, and then, in verse 64, uh, John adds, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe in, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he's anticipating by that last comment, verse 70 and 71, where Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, 
for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray uh, him. And so the disciples, quote-unquote, defection, these fair-weather disciples' defection and Judas' defection, I think are here to just warn all of us with how hard our human hearts are when we're born in sin. Um, we are alienated from God. And here you have people, I mean, think of Judas. These people, they had seen Jesus, and yet they didn't believe. They'd seen Jesus do miracles like the loaves and the fishes. They didn't believe. They'd seen Jesus heal the sick, and they didn't believe. They had heard Jesus give this marvelous teaching on being the bread of life, and they didn't believe. Uh, Judas had been chosen as an apostle, didn't believe. He was with Jesus for three years. He saw everything Jesus did, all his miracles. He heard his teaching, both public and private. He was friends with the other apostles so he could interact with them and talk with them about spiritual things. And he had even gone out on a mission trip. And in that trip, he had seen God do miracles through him. And yet Judas was unbelieving. Wow, what a tragedy. And he was lost. So we have to be born again to to submit to hard truth. And then a third thing to note is that to submit to hard truths, we often have to go against our cultural and religious backgrounds by confronting our preconceived ideas. See, these disciples, the superficial disciples, were grumbling because in their minds, Messiah was going to come and conquer. Messiah was the guy that was going to sit on David's throne. He was going to get rid of these Romans out of the Holy Land. And, and uh, he was going to bring in this age of peace and prosperity. And here's Jesus saying, I'm going to give for the life of the world my flesh. Huh? You see, that just jarred them. For the, first of all, just get, give your flesh. That means you're going to die? Wait a minute, that's not our concept of Messiah, a dying Messiah. And then that little phrase, the world, up there in verse 51. You know what that means to a Jew? Gentile dogs? You've got to be kidding. You're giving your life for these, these pagan Gentile dogs that aren't even Jews? See, so it grated on their worldview and on their religion. And as I said, their religion said it is abominable to drink blood of an animal. And here's this carpenter from Nazareth saying, you've got to drink my blood? Oh, gross. So all of this was confronting them. And their view was, well, isn't being a good Jew enough to get into heaven? I mean, after all, we're the children of Abraham, and uh, we are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, we keep the law Isn't that enough? And so Jesus here is confronting their worldview. Um, Then in verse 62, Jesus asked these unbelieving disciples, well, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? I think, again, He is confronting their mistaken expectations because in John 12, in verse uh, 34, we see that the Jews expected Messiah to reign forever. He was going to come and set up his kingdom, and he wasn't going anywhere. And now here's Jesus saying, what if you see me going back to heaven? Which, of course, implies he came from heaven and that he is uh, preexistent before he came to earth. Um, So that confronted them. 
And of course, we know that before he ascended into heaven, he would give his life on the cross, he would be raised from the dead, and then he would ascend into heaven. But they were thinking, this doesn't fit. This doesn't fit. Even in Acts 1.6, right before Jesus ascends, his own disciples, these are the faithful ones, but they ask him this question, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They've still got this mindset. Okay, we just got through the cross and the resurrection. Now the kingdom, right? And Jesus has to correct them. And then he uh, ascends on high. But uh, they had to confront their preconceived ideas. And they had to say, you know, it's not God's plan to set the kingdom up right now. Jesus is going back to the Father. He's going to send the Spirit. And then he's given us this commission to go into all the world with the gospel and he will return to reign at a later time. I think as you think about Judas' defection and betrayal too, in part, of course part of it was he wasn't born again, but in part too, he had wrong expectations about Jesus. When he signed on as an apostle, he had visions of grandeur. This is the Messiah. He's going to set up his kingdom. And there's going to be 12 thrones, and there's 12 apostles, and each one of us will be reigning on a throne over the 12 tribes of Israel. I like that program. Yep, I can get into this. And then Jesus starts getting fixated on, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be suffering and dying. And Judas was horrified, because that didn't fit his vision for the future. I would suspect that if you've been a Christian for very long, you've had to confront some expectations that you had when you first came to Christ. You thought it would be this way, but it hasn't been that way. Uh, you know, you, you, maybe it's from your religious background, maybe it's from culture, maybe it was the pitch you heard for the gospel. If you come to Jesus, He'll give you peace and joy and an abundant life. Hey, sign me up, man. But what you didn't hear in the fine print was, you may have peace and joy and an abundant life as you're in a prison being tortured for your faith or getting your head lopped off. Talk to John the Baptist about peace, joy, and the abundant life. Or talk to that Iranian-American pastor who's over there in that horrible prison in Tehran this morning. Uh, peace, joy, and abundant life? Yeah. Yeah. Through great tribulation, we enter the kingdom, as Paul says. So, first, we've got to acknowledge there's hard truth in the Bible, and the only way to deal with it is to submit to it. And to submit to it, we have to have the new birth from the Holy Spirit so that we can understand these things that are spiritually discerned. And we have to go against our culture and sometimes our religious culture that presents a far unbiblical kind of view of the Christian life. Uh, and then fourthly, to submit to hard truths, we have to accept that God is sovereign even over evil and unbelief. And this is a hard problem, I confess. But Jesus is the one who brings it up. I'm not making this up. It's in the text in verse 65. Jesus again brings up to these unbelieving disciples for the third time in this chapter. He does it in verse 37. He does it in verse 44, which is virtually repeated in verse 65. For this reason, I have said to you 
that no one can come to me, and that's a word of inability. They are not able to come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now, as we saw when we studied that in verse 37 and in verse 44, each time that Jesus states this truth, he does it in response to skepticism or unbelief. I was told in seminary, you never bring that up with unbelievers. Jesus three times violates that here. You see, skepticism and unbelief, he confronts it with his sovereignty. Three times over. Uh, Notice, again, up in verse 36, he tells his critics, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And then the very next words out of his mouth, verse 37, all that the Father has given me will come to me. There's his sovereignty. Then, in verse 43, Jesus confronts their grumbling. Don't grumble among yourselves. What are the very next words out of his mouth? Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You have the same pattern here. Jesus confronts their unbelief in verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe. And his very next words in verse 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And then you have the same thing in verse 70 with the mention of Judas and his betrayal. Jesus comes in with his sovereignty again. I chose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil. So he emphasizes his sovereignty. So you have to ask, well, what is the point of this repeated cycle you have here of unbelief, God's sovereignty? Unbelief, God's sovereignty. Unbelief, God's sovereignty. What, what's... The point, well, I think I explained it back when we were in verses 37 to 40. I believe Jesus is showing us we can take comfort in God's sovereignty even over unbelief and evil uh, because that doesn't in any way thwart the the plan of God. Um, You see, if you're not careful and you have a close friend or family member who turns from the Lord and begins trashing the faith, it's contagious. It can taint you. And you begin to question, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe, yeah, he's got some good questions. Maybe I should be having some doubts about my faith, too. Uh, Whoa, maybe I better go back and look at things again, and maybe I'm wrong. Or, again, when evil people do bad things to you personally, They betray you or you get thrown into prison because you're doing the right thing. It's easy to begin questioning God. You know, where is God if he's loving and sovereign? Why is God permitting this? And you can begin to doubt. Now, I think Jesus is showing repeatedly in this chapter so we don't miss it. Even these people who saw his miracles, these people who heard his magnificent teaching and they reject him. God is still on the throne, and God's program has not been thwarted by their unbelief. Uh, The explanation, why they didn't believe, the Father hasn't drawn them. The Father hasn't granted to them to come to Jesus. Judas, uh, Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. We'll look more at that next time. But the point is, even if difficult things happen to you, Even if your closest friends or loved ones, God forbid, but they turn away from the faith, uh, God is still the sovereign God who, as he says in Ephesians 1.11, 
works all things after the counsel of his will, or as Daniel 4.35 says, he still does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so that gives us the strength to persevere in faith. Even when others around us are denying the faith and turning away, we can persevere knowing that God is, is God. And yet, at the same time, let me emphasize, unbelievers are responsible for their unbelief. No one will blame God at the judgment. You didn't choose me. God will rightly say, you rejected my son. And they will be guilty. One last uh, point here we have time for this morning, and uh, I struggled with how to get all this into one message and finally realized it's impossible and gave up, so you'll have to come back for part two. But the last point is this. When you submit in faith to the hard truths of God's word, you gain the foundation for certain knowledge. Uh, In the face of all this widespread defection, Among these professed followers, Jesus turns to the twelve and asks this poignant question in verse 67. You do not also want to go away, or you do not want to go away also, do you? Wow, that's that's a profound question. Now, the way Jesus asks it, in the Greek text at least, shows that he expects them to reply, no, we're not going away. He didn't think they would say, yeah, we're out of here too. And I think he asked the question just to test their faith. And then Peter, dear Peter, I love him, he speaks for the group. He's wrong because they don't all agree with him. Judas is the one exception, as we'll see. But Jesus, in, uh, Peter speaks to Jesus, answers him in verse 68 and 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? We have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Now, I'll go into that confession more next week, but I just want to look right now at that statement. We have believed and have come to know. They're somewhat synonymous, but I think the order is crucial. You believe, and then, because you believe, you come to know that Jesus is who he claimed to be. You know, the world says seeing is believing. The Bible says no, believing is seeing. That's the way we come to certain faith. In Hebrews 11.3, the author says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So faith yields understanding or knowledge. Now, As I've often explained, faith isn't just a blind leap in the dark because our faith is based on the apostolic testimony or witness to Jesus. If those guys were all wrong, then we're wrong. But uh, they give us credible evidence. Jesus is who he claimed to be. But my point is, you will never attain knowledge of spiritual things until you believe in Jesus. And believing you'll come to know. The main reason, as we've seen in John already many times, that people do not believe in Christ is not because they lack credible evidence. It's because they love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. They love their sin. In loving their sin, they don't want to submit to the lordship of Jesus. But 
after we come to Christ, we surrender to Him, the Spirit comes to dwell in us, He gives us knowledge of spiritual truth, and you'll read your Bible and you'll say, wow, why didn't I ever see that before? It's like the light goes on and you begin to connect and begin to understand that Jesus is the Holy One of God, which we'll look at more next time. So next time, we'll look at faith in the Son of God as the antidote to uh, spiritual defection. But just as I conclude here, let me mention there are three groups that are represented in our text for today. Uh, first group, of course, are those who sh- are initially are interested in Jesus. They like him. They're called disciples here, followers. But then when something grates on them, something they don't like, they're out of there. They, they depart. They leave uh, the faith. They defect. The second group, <clears throat> and I hope there are none in this group, but uh, represented by Judas. Judas seemed fully committed to Jesus. He even faked out the other disciples because you'll remember in the upper room when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they all looked at each other and looked at the Lord puzzled and said, Lord, is it I? You know, you'd think they'd all look down the table at Judas and go, there's the dirty rat. You know, they didn't. He faked him. He faked it good. Uh, but his life ended tragically in rejecting Christ. And then there are those like Peter who submit with persevering faith, even to the hard teachings, because they know who Jesus really is, and they're committed to follow him. So as we close, I just want you to think about, am I in that third group? I hope most of you are. It's hard sometimes even to know our own hearts, isn't it? But I hope you're in the third group. Make sure your faith is in the Word of God and in Jesus the Son of God. He is God's Messiah. Father, we come before you thanking you for this portion, which is hard to see people professing faith and then walking away, and yet we've all seen it. And it's always difficult. And Lord, I pray that none hearing my words here would defect when they encounter hard things in their lives personally hard truth in your word, that we all would have submissive and teachable hearts. And even if we don't understand, Lord, that we would believe in you and cling to you as our only hope for eternal life. We thank you, Lord, and pray that you would work your will in our lives for your namesake and glory. Amen.